God speaks to us in his word in Mark 10, 13 through 34. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the needle, the eye of a needle, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, chipper group, all right, <laughs> rowdy and ready, man, good morning. good morning, hey, we did it, that's awesome, man, my name is Chad Kinser, I serve as uh, one of the pastors in our church, uh, particularly an elder, uh, downtown congregation, I serve as a teaching pastor, which means uh, I primarily operate in my role downtown, but occasionally I get to visit another one of our congregations and, and preach on a Sunday, and so Ben is out on vacation, and uh, getting some much-deserved and much-needed rest out with some of our friends in North Carolina. And so I get the privilege of, of jumping in here today with you guys. I love hearing the reports that come out of this congregation. Pat and Ben uh, get to share with our other elders all the time. And it's a privilege to, to worship with you and get to see what's happening here on the ground. So um, I'm glad to be here. 
you've got a Bible, Mark chapter 10 is where we are, the passage that was just read. Uh, the marathon passage of standing and hearing the word of God is so good. Thank you for reading it so well. And if you would pray for me, uh, I'll pray for you and see how God would shape us. Sound good? All right, Rowdy, here we go. <laughs> I'll just trust it sounds good. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the songs that you give us. Um, Thank you for the prayers that you give us. Thank you for the assurance the gospel gives us. There's all kinds of ways where uh, what we need most today is an encounter with you, a fresh encounter with you. And so, uh, Jesus, thank you that your word is never empty. Thank you that your word is never something that you take back or wanna change. Thank you that you mean what you say. And so as we approach your word today, we want to ask that you'd help us submit to it and be formed by it and be, um, be guided because of it. And so we offer this prayer in Jesus' name, and together we said, amen, amen. Well, I want to jump in with a bit of a thought experiment and invite you to kind of think with me uh, around where we're headed in the spirit of this passage. So, so I'll throw out this question, and then we'll take some time to think through it. When you hear the words... Weak, needy, and dependent. What comes to mind? When you hear the words weak, needy, and dependent, what, what comes to mind? How do you feel about those words? Do you think about those words, or how do you think about those words in relation to yourself? How do you think about those words? How do you feel about those words in relationship to other people that you might use to describe with those words? Let me flip it now and give you three different words to think about. Strong, disciplined, and successful. How do you feel about those words? Think about yourself. Do you think about yourself in those terms? How do you feel about other people that you might use those words to describe? It's probably a different set of feelings, isn't it? A different set of emotions, a different set of thoughts come along with that. Here's what I'm driving at by trying to invite you into this reflection. All of us have an ideal self. All of us have like a Polaroid version of ourselves that we want to be, right? And it probably doesn't fall in line with that first set of words, right? The version of ourselves that we want to be, the version of ourselves that we even feel like we have to be, the version of ourselves that we assume that other people want us to be if they're gonna stay with us and not abandon us probably falls more in line with that second string of words, doesn't it? All of us have an ideal self, but it's also true that there's an actual self, <laughs> that there's who we really are, who we really know ourselves to be that doesn't match the Polaroid. That regardless of what we project out there and we want other people to think about us and we, we want other people to feel about us a certain way, there's who we really are, who we really know ourselves to be that doesn't match. And so we've got to reckon with that. We've got to deal with that. And I don't think it's that you and I are entirely opposed to being weak and needy and dependent. 
We're not entirely opposed to other people when they're in those spots in life. Just so long as we don't stay there, right? (laughs) Just so long as we graduate on from that place. Just so long as whatever's happening in those places of weakness and need and dependence provide for us the lessons we need to achieve greatness or move on from there to something else. So I pitched that because what's happening in the book of Mark is Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's telling us, remember his first sermon in chapter one, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning you're looking at him, right? The, The rule and the reign of God is breaking into this present world. He says, repent and believe. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. Then he's also demonstrating. He's got ministry to all kinds of different people and all kinds of different spots in life. But it's not just a show and tell sort of venture. He's not just proclaiming and demonstrating. He's also then inviting us. Hey, come and join me. This is not something for you to watch, watch and hear about. I want you to join me and be formed by me. And all of that sounds well and good. Like Jesus talks like no one else talks. Jesus does what very few other people, in fact, no one else can do. I want to join in with this. This sounds good. I want to be formed by this man until being formed by him sort of runs against what seems conventional or natural to me. Until being formed by him and joining him begins to sting and begins to confront me and begins to deal with me and change me in places that I'd rather not be changed. Here's what's happening in this passage today. This passage is familiar to us. If you've had any time in church, you've probably heard Jesus receiving the children and blessing them. You've heard the story of the rich young ruler before, right? This passage is familiar to us. If you haven't had any time in church and don't know these stories, you're actually probably a bit better off today, right? Because what happens with familiarity is that it can rob us from a fresh encounter. You begin to sort of assume, I know where this is headed, I know where this is going, and you sort of tune out and look forward to lunch at Theopolis or something like that. But here's what I would suggest to you. Don't let your familiarity rob you. Why? Because this passage, more than any other passage I can think of, if I'm going to be honest about the way I want to try to lean into it today and the way it's affected me, I can't think of any other passage that is more confrontational to middle-class, Bible-belt, moral religion than this one. I can't think of any other passage that probably should be read not as sort of a passage out there at arm's length, but a passage that reads our mail. Like if we do this right today, by the help of the Spirit, what I can say today can jump in the stream of this passage. We ought to feel exposed and challenged And I don't have a clear outline sort of saying, here's three easy points that we're going to put this together. I just sort of have like, here's the main theme of the passage, and then I want to unfold it. So here it is. The main theme of this passage is this. The kingdom of God is a matter of trust and dependence, not merit and status. The rule and the reign of God, the kingdom of God, is a matter of trust and dependence, not merit and status. Let's jump into it, verse 13. It says, and they were bringing the children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus saw and he was indignant. That's a really strong, important word. And he said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them and he laid his hands on them. So this text picks up and here's what's happening. There's all these families apparently bringing their kids to Jesus. No one talks like him. No one does the things that he does. Surely the Spirit of God is on this man. We want this man to bless our children and sort of consecrate them to a life 
around God, the things of God and the kingdom of God. We want this, this man to sort of, you know, set aside and mar- set apart our children. And so the disciples see this and they rebuke these families. Hey, hey, this is the son of God after all. Do you not realize he's got more important things to do than handle your toddler? He, he's got more important things to do than have a conversation with your little one. Uh, he, he's a really important guy and they're really proud of themselves for rebuking these families, trying to get in the way of Jesus saying, we really put a fire out for you, Jesus. We, they, these people were trying to try to bring their little kids to you and bother you with that. And then Jesus hears of this and he rebukes the disciples for rebuking these families. He even gets a bit indignant, it says, and says, hey, Stop that. You guys are always getting in the way of good and right things. And so what happens is Jesus receives these, right? He says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And just to pull aside and make observation here, it's a beautiful moment where Jesus actually dignifies every single life at every stage of life. Just to catch that for a second. He dignifies every life at every stage of life. If you wonder what Jesus thinks or what God thinks about humanity, just consider It's not just how he treats them, but Jesus joined us in every stage of life from conception onward. Like Jesus dignifies not just in how he treats people, but he dignifies every stage of life from conception onward because God himself joined us in it, in the full range of the human experience. It's it's an amazing thing. But the point I want to draw out here is then after this moment, Jesus has this word of invitation and formation to discipleship. He says in 15, truly I say to you, notice this language. It's not just that the kingdom of God belongs to the vulnerable ones, but whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So this moves from like this moment of sentimental warmth around the cuteness of kids and the vulnerability of those tender And now he moves it to a moment of mission-critical formation. He even goes to the extent to say, if you don't receive the kingdom of God like this, if you don't get this, if you don't see this, you will be excluded from God and his kingdom. Like this is a moment that moves from warmth and sentiment to a line in the sand around formation as to what it means to be a disciple. And so to be clear, right, Jesus isn't telling us to be childish. That's not what he's suggesting here. He's not saying that if you're gonna follow me, it's gonna mean you know, sort of being perpetually immature and naive and just turning your brain off in a thinking world because you're a person of faith. That's not what he's suggesting. What he's doing is he's dignifying something about the self-awareness of a child. So what do you mean about the self-awareness of a child? Well, children are unassuming, aren't they? They're weak and they know it. They're needy, they're limited, and and they know it. They're dependent and and they know it. And even when they don't wanna be those things and they try to show how strong and whatever they are, they get frustrated and they start crying because they can't do the things that they wanna do and then they recognize I'm weak and I'm needy and dependent and I know it. There's something dignifying about that kind of self-awareness. And then there's something else there that's happening in a child. They they actually trust that there will be someone on the other side of those limitations to help them. And that's why so many of us have sort of the brokenness and fracture that we experience in this world because we've been in those places and then someone hasn't been there. But the idea is that children recognize someone ought to be there. 
And this is what it is to see, the reason Jesus says this, this is what it is to see ourselves rightly before the face of God. Like this, is, this is clear vision of yourself and of God. And this is what it is to enter the kingdom. Of, this is the pathway of discipleship so that to be a disciple is not to say, you know what, I've got, I've got this need out there and, and I'm gonna trust God with it. No, to be a disciple, Jesus is suggesting, is that you not only recognize your need, but that you grow into varsity level understanding of how needy you've always been, how needy you will always be, how needy you are right now. And it's not just trusting God one time, it's trusting God over and over and over with all of it. That's the pathway of discipleship. You don't become less needy and graduate from that. You become a graduate in understanding how needy you really are and have always been. And it's interesting because like Jesus just could have told us, you know, Hey guys, if you're going to see yourself the right way, if you're going to like put off the facade, you're going to need to understand that before the face of God that you really are needy and dependent. He could have just said that like that. But instead, he wants us to see something textured here. And so he uses these children that are present and he says, I want you to receive the kingdom of God like this. And what he means by that is on the other side of your weakness, on the other side of your dependence and your need, there's actually someone there that you fear might not be there. There really is a father to receive you. There really is a father on the other side of your fears. And so Jesus says, you've got to receive the kingdom like this. And if you don't, you will not enter it. So he draws a line in the sand and now this is, becomes the backdrop. Everything that comes after this is meant to be seen in contrast. This, this becomes the backdrop that helps us see in technicolor everything that comes after it. So pick up with me in the next section, verse 17. It says, as he was setting out on his journey, this man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, how must I, or what must I do to receive eternal life, inherit eternal life? So, so based on the description we just had, it looks like this man is doing it, right? He's running with eagerness. He's kneeling. He's calling out for help. It looks like, hey, he's coming to the kingdom of God, seeking to enter it like a child. So far, so good. But notice what happens. Jesus said to this man, hey, why do you call me good? Don't you know that God alone is good? No one is good except God. And what Jesus means by this question is, you're calling me good teacher. Don't you recognize that that belongs to God alone? You're asking for eternal life. By the question, he's saying, do you realize how close you are? Do you realize you're asking for eternal life? You're calling me good. That alone belongs to God. Do you recognize, even if this man is observing spatial distance, which is like two feet for comfortable interpersonal re relationship, right? He's saying, do you realize you're two feet from the thing you're asking for? Do you realize how close you are? And so then Jesus goes on. He says, well, you know the commandments, don't you? Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And then, G and then this man says to Jesus, well, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. Pause here. This is really important. We catch, we catch what's going on. So this man runs up to Jesus, wants eternal life, and then Jesus unfolds for him all the moral commandments of how we treat one another. And this guy says, hey, I've, I've actually done all that since I was a kid. So what we're supposed to get here, this man was just unfolded for us. He was just profiled for us as literally the poster child of everything that we've been told we're supposed to be. Moral, religious, successful. He's, 
If all of our parents in the room would have said, hey, if you can turn out like the rich young ruler, you're doing it. I want you to have your morals together and treat people the right way. I want you to sprinkle a bit of religion on that and have some spirituality about you. And that's a well-rounded conscience. And then I want you to work hard and be a part of the Rotary Club and all the rest and upward and to the right. And you're a person in society that's doing well and people know it. This man is the poster child of everything we've been told we're supposed to be. This man is the Polaroid of the ideal self. Now that's really important because notice what happens next. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. So pause there. Whatever Jesus is about to say, he doesn't say to bully this man. He doesn't say to put his finger in this man's chest and belittle him. Whatever Jesus is about to say, he says with great affection for this man. He loves him. And so he locks eyes with him. And then he says these words. He says, you lack one thing. I want you to go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. What's Jesus doing here? Did you hear when Jesus told this man how to inherit eternal life? He gave him the last six commandments. They're all the ones that deal with how we treat one another. Don't defraud, honor your father and mother, all these sorts of things. But he didn't give him the first four commandments. The first four commandments of the 10 deal primarily with our relationship to God and then the next six deal primarily with our relationship to one another. And so then when Jesus turns the conversation and points it to his possessions, he's pointing him back to the first two commandments. He shall have no other gods before me and no idols. What Jesus is doing is he's sort of coming in the back door to have a conversation with this man, to invite him into a conversation about his heart and relationship to God, a conversation this man knows that he needs to have but doesn't wanna have. I know I should really think about my heart relationship to God, but I'm good when it goes as far as people. As far as people go, I'm good. I don't wanna talk about the other stuff because I don't know what to do with that. And so the point isn't so much about his possessions. We always think this is about his wealth But the point is that this man's heart is divided between God and money, and he refuses to deal with that. He refuses to deal with it. And so when Jesus tells him to go sell all of his possessions, he knows that if the man follows him here, it's going to expose him with weakness and dependence and need to receive the kingdom of God like a child that he might enter into it despite all his attempts to cover himself over with strength and well-being because I got stuff. And so Jesus loves him in this point of the conversation. So I wanna pitch something to the room here. Is there a place in your life where you sense Jesus inviting you into a conversation that you know you need to have, but you don't want to? (laughs) Is there a place in your life where you sense Jesus trying to put his finger on something like he did with this man to deal with something that you know you need to deal with but you just don't want to deal with it where he's trying to get you to face yourself but instead you insist on shoving it down and putting it to the side and covering over your weakness with this facade of strength and well-being. Do you have a place like that? And the reason I throw that out is because when Jesus leans on us like that, when he leans on this man, Remember, it says Jesus loved him. He's not trying to bully you. He's not trying to upend you. 
He does this with love in his heart so that you can see that on the other side of your fear, on the other side of your facades, on the other side of your distaste for being exposed, you actually have a father who will receive you and form you there. And so I just wanna pause to say, hey, we live in a world like we're told bigger, faster, stronger is better. And then weakness and need are like these curses or these allergies that we have to avoid, right? But before the face of God, like these aren't curses. This isn't a curse. Like it's actually weakness and need that is the appropriate, the appropriate context where a child can understand who they are in relationship to their parent. And if it's that way with us, how much more so with our heavenly father? He's actually starting to say like, hey, I want you to know yourself as a son or as a daughter and me as a father. But I want you to notice this guy's response in 22. It says he was disheartened by the saying and he went away sorrowful because he had a lot of stuff. And so he, this guy's saying, hey, I'm not interested in dealing with my weakness. I'm not interested in being exposed like that. I'll get my own back. I don't really care to meet the father. I don't wanna put myself out there in a position to potentially get disappointed again or to get manipulated again. My stuff, all my possessions, it makes me feel important. It makes me feel safe. It makes me feel secure. People recognize who I am because I'm a rich young ruler. I'm not looking necessarily for God in all this conversation, Jesus. I'm just looking for eternal life there. Like, can you give me some encouragement? Can you clear my conscience that I'm a well-rounded person, moral, a bit religious, and upward to the right, successful? Like, that's enough, right? I was just coming, looking for, looking for you to tell me what I wanna hear, not really anything other than that. And so he walked away. Is there anything in your life that makes you feel important? and safe and secure. That sometimes you use as this shield to cover yourself over not to have to really deal with God. Like, hey, listen, I may not have any vibrant relationship with God, but I've got these things and people see me a certain way and my life rolls a certain way. And so even if I don't have that, I've got this. And so my life must be good. And I don't need to deal with God. And then when those things get threatened, because isn't that true? Like your sense of importance and safety always gets threatened. And then when that gets threatened, the problem isn't with your heart idolizing those things. Your problem, you assume then, is blame shifted to other people. They're the problem. They're the one that's really upending my life because after all, I'm important. Don't they know that? And I'm safe and secure because of these things. Maybe to ask the question a different way, is there any place in your life where you've just become okay to settle with middle-class, moral, Bible-belt religion that has the facade of strength because you would rather do that than become like a child and face the Father? Is there a place where you've become okay with middle-class, moral, Bible-belt religion? Here, here's the scary thing about this passage. Here's what I want you to feel. All of this to lead us to here. Jesus lets this man walk. Like that's the bomb of this passage. Like this is the place where this passage actually messes with my theology. I don't know what to do with this. This makes me feel uncomfortable. I wanna say Jesus doesn't let anybody walk. He's gonna reel it back. Well, I didn't mean sell all your stuff. Just like, you know, like, hey, come back. Let's actually have the conversation again. Let's put some asterisks on it. Let's like, let's massage this. I really meant this when I said that. Jesus doesn't 
edit his words. He doesn't pull back his tweets. He doesn't edit his Facebook posts. He looks at this man. This man didn't want to have the conversation that he knew he needed to have but didn't want to have. And Jesus lets him walk and doesn't chase him. Like that's where many of us have probably encountered these passages of scripture before and seen them as separate and seen this one and just kind of, well, that's sad for that man. I'm glad I didn't do that. And we haven't really put ourselves in this man's shoes. Jesus lets this man walk. Man, Bible belt, middle class, moral religion, and Jesus lets him walk. He's a walking illustration of verse 15. If you don't receive the kingdom of God like a child, you will not enter it. That's not just a suggestion. He means that. This is different, isn't it? Look at what happens in 23. And so Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed, not because they thought, wow, that's incredible, Jesus, but because they're like, I don't know what to do with this. And Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. This isn't a matter of cavalier. I'll live however I want and do whatever I want and settle for whatever I want. And God will have to deal with it because after all, he's kind and merciful and forgiving. This is, hey, do you understand that the kingdom of God is dealing with his holiness, his majesty, his might, his power, his wisdom, his final verdict? It's easier for those for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What he's getting at is not that money is bad in of itself. Money isn't the great evil here, but it's how prone our hearts are as the great evil to look to money and ourselves to cover ourselves and our weaknesses and our dependence and our need. And so let's pick up in 26. And so they were exceedingly astonished. They were, their minds were blown because they said, well, if this man, if you're going to let this man walk, if you're not going to go negotiate for this man, he's the poster child of everything we've been told we're supposed to be. That if we can just have the externals and the appearance of what this man has, morality, spirituality, success, power. If you're going to let this man walk, then who can be saved? Like, will you negotiate for anybody? That's 26. That's what the disciples are like. If you don't save this guy, then what's the hope for us in 27? And Jesus looked at them and said, well, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And then Peter totally misses the point of all this. And he's like, well, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. So we're good, right? What this guy wouldn't do, we've done. So he misses the fact that it's, this is the work of God in your heart. And he's like, well, but we have sold everything. and We've followed, we left our nets. The word must be good. Jesus picks up in 29. For truly I say to you, there's no one who sacrificed house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake in the gospel. Anyone who leaves these things, it's not about what you're leaving behind, that you will not also receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. What Jesus is suggesting is that parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man finds it, he sells everything he has to acquire that field. It's not about what you're giving up. Do you see on the other side of your fears, you have a father, you have the promises of God, you have the presence of God. It's what you're receiving a hundredfold. And he says, down here, there are many who will appear to be first. They will appear to be great and powerful and have it all together. But on that final day, they will be last. 
And there are many down here who appear to be vulnerable and marginalized and weak and dependent and needy and mocked at by this world, but on the great day, they will be first. So we want to end today by just going, how do we do it? You will not enter the kingdom of God unless you receive it like a child. So how do we do it? Like, it's not like you can just go, okay, I got it. Weakness, dependence, and need. Got it. <laughs> you don't just white your knuckles and try hard. It doesn't work that way. Do you see it like to enter the kingdom like a child actually exposes you to go like, I, I, I don't know, how do I do that? Notice where this passage ends in verses 32 and 34. Here's the big finish. Jesus tells them for the third time of his coming sufferings. For the third time he tells them this. So here's what's happening. Jesus doesn't just preach weakness and dependence and need. He actually practices what he preaches and he embodies it himself. At the cross, Jesus is weak and needy and dependent. The only son of God trusted himself entirely to the Father and he wasn't abandoned. He wasn't abandoned. And so when you see Jesus there, as the passage says, mocked and flogged and spat upon and killed in your place, innocent blood at the hands of sinful men for sinners like you and me, getting what he did not deserve receiving on him everything that we deserve before the face of God for all of our high treason against his majesty. When you see him there, it's crazy, right? Like we spend so much of our lives trying to cover ourselves over because we're afraid of being outed. But what's happening at the cross is that you've already been outed. Everything that you're trying to cover over to pretend to yourself and everyone else that it's not really there has been laid bare before the eyes of God. It's been judged on the head of Jesus and absorbed in him. It's not just that someone died, but it's that Jesus Christ died, the God-man. It's not just that someone is offering you forgiveness. It's that the one who has the final verdict is offering forgiveness. And it's not just that someone out there will receive you and be nice to you on the other side of your weakness and dependence and your need. It's that the Father of heaven is there. And you're not up for grabs and you're not negotiable and he's not bothered by you. That's what it is. And so when you see that, the only response to Jesus being lifted up in your place is the cry of a child. Father, help. Help. I can't do it on my own. I can't save myself. I need the cross. I need my Savior's blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Not my great efforts and my morality and my spirituality and my possessions, but nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious is the flow that makes me white as snow, nothing. Father, help. Father, help. Two questions and we'll pray. Is there any place in your life where you sense Jesus 
is inviting you to have a conversation that you know you need to have, but you don't want to have. Is there any place where he's trying to get you to face yourself and thus him, but instead you want to push it down and shove it to the side and cover yourself over with a facade of strength and well-being instead of being weak and dependent and needy like a child. Let's pray. Father, the thing that I'm asking right now that I feel today, I'm asking that you would save us from understanding this passage but not being formed by it. Would you save us from having this intellectual understanding of what's happening here, but our hearts are unmoved, unchanged, and unformed? Would you save us from that? Would you help us to believe that on the other side of the things that we're most afraid to face really is your presence? Really is your presence. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.